Well, hey guys, welcome to week five in our study of the book of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter three, verses one through five. So open your Bibles and turn there. Now, I know what you're thinking. With just five verses to cover, we should be done early, but don't get your hopes up. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on th these particular verses because they're jam-packed with information we need to look at in order to understand this part of the story of Jonah's life. So open your Bibles and, and let's get started. We're going to read through these five verses together first. But I want to begin with the last verse of chapter 2. You remember we ended last week and it said, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. The one thing I didn't cover last week is this, this issue of the dry land. Uh, this is the second time this term has appeared. And if you recall, Jonah referred to the dry land earlier on when he was back up on the ship and the captain of the ship came to him and woke him up. They asked him who he was. They shot a bunch of questions at him. And his answer to these questions, listen to this, in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's just interesting to me that the author has brought back that phrase, the dry land, in, in where Jonah gets puked out, so to speak. He, he gets vomited up on dry land. And he had made this kind of bold statement that he was a Hebrew and that he worshiped Yahweh, and that his God, Yahweh, was the God of the sea and the land. Well, his experience in the sea wasn't exactly the best, right? He got thrown overboard. He sank down, almost drowned. He was rescued by this unlikely savior, this deliverer in the form of this great fish. And then that great fish was ordered by God to literally puke him out on dry land. So Jonah is learning that, man, his statement has more power to it than he even imagined. God's in charge of the sea. God's in charge of the land. But now that he's back on dry land, let's, let's read these verses together. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it this message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You know, there's an interesting thing in these verses. And if you've noticed in your reading, these have probably jumped out at you. There's a mirror effect going on. Chapter 1, the opening verses of chapter 1 are mirrored by these verses in chapter 3. And I just want to put these two passages up side by side to give you an idea of what's going on. Look at the, the comparison between these two. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, what's happened in between these? Well, Jonah ran away. Jonah fled to Joppa, got on a ship, started heading towards Tarshish. The storm came by the will of God. Jonah gets exposed, he gets thrown overboard, he begins to sink, he gets saved, and then he gets regurgitated up on the shore. So there's, there's a lot that's happened between verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3, but it, we're not done. It goes on and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. This is God commanding Jonah from the get-go, the very first verses of chapter 1, what he was supposed to do. Then we have the break, we have the, the scene that takes place in between, 
And then once again, those same words, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So you see that there's, they're almost word for word. And that's important for us to understand. It goes on, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now here's the difference, right? We know the story. The first time he was told to get up and go, and he got up and went. He went the wrong direction. But now, chapter 3, after all the things that happened in between in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it says, so Jonah arose and this time went to Nineveh. So it seems like he may have learned a lesson. He, he may have gotten something out of this whole experience of near drowning and near death and then being saved by this giant fish. So he, the first time, fled from the presence of the Lord, but this time it says, he went according to the word of the Lord. So there appears to be some significant changes taking place, almost word for word, almost verbatim. But what's really going on? I think the author is, is definitely trying to show us that what's going on in chapter 1 and what's going on in chapter 2 are similar, but yet still different. And we'll see why. See, really, if you look at these, it's, it's a case of deja vu. It's, it's like he's going through the same thing over again. And I think he senses that. I think Jonah understands that. It's all like the same nightmare all over again. You remember he fled because he didn't want to take the message to Nineveh because he was afraid that if he takes the message to Nineveh and he calls down the judgment of God, there might be a chance that they repent and God save them, God spare them. And that's going to become clear as we go through these five verses. So he had escaped death, right? He escaped death of drowning. He had sunk to the, the furthest depths of the Mediterranean Sea, to the roots of the mountains, and God saved him, but he had not escaped God's call. See, that's really significant. Those opening verses of chapter 1, opening verses of chapter 3 are almost identi identical because the call remains the same. See, Jonah's discovering that I can run... I can try to escape. I can try to do things my way. But when it's all said and done, God's going to get his will done. He's going to win in this battle of wills, so to speak. So nothing had really changed. There's four things that remain unchanged. They remain the same from chapter 1 to the opening verses of chapter 3. The first one is God's mission. God's mission for Jonah ha has not changed one iota. He's not lessened it. He's not changed it. He, it's the same exact message. Go. Go to Nineveh and declare. Proclaim. Tell them what I'm telling you to tell them. So nothing had changed. The message was exactly the same. The message for Nineveh was no different. Jonah was supposed to go and tell the same message to the same people. And also, their wickedness was the same. Nineveh had not changed in the time that Jonah had spent on the boat, in the water, and in the belly of the fish. Nineveh was just as wicked as they were before. So that remains unchanged. And finally, Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites has not altered in one sense at all. He is exactly the same guy as he was before. I don't see him as repentant. I don't see him as changed. I think he hates these people just as much as when he fled to go to Tarshish. So a lot of things have remained exactly the same, and yet God's going to still work. God's going to still do what he wants to do, and he's going to use Jonah to do it.
Now, if you're reading the devotionary that I wrote earlier this year as part of your homework, you'll recall what I said on this. Nineveh was still there, right? They hadn't gone anywhere. And the people of Nineveh were just as wicked as they had ever been. Again, nothing had changed in Nineveh. But there was one more thing that remained unchanged, God's plan for the city and its inhabitants. And whether Jonah liked it or not, God was going to use him to pour out a blessing on the immoral and totally unworthy people of Nineveh. Now, this is really important to understand. Jonah didn't know this yet. Jonah didn't know that God was going to use him to bless these people. And as we'll see, he really isn't a willful participation anywhere along the way. He doesn't want them saved. He doesn't want them redeemed by God. He wants them destroyed by God. And yet God, with Jonah's kind of weirded out, broken heart, is still going to be used to accomplish God's will, which is amazing to me. So four things remain the same. Jonah, in particular, he's still the same guy. That, that whole thing in the ocean, that whole thing in the belly of the fish have, have not changed him one iota. He's the same. So let's take a look at this. This says, so Jonah rose and he went to Nineveh. Now we could clap our hands and pat Jonah on the back and say, hey, way to go, Jonah. Way, you, you really are showing that you're repentant. You're really showing that you're a man of God. And you're willing to do what God wants you to do. But let's not give this guy too many props right, right now. Jonah is still the same guy with the same problem of pride and arrogance and really hatred for these people. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. Now, it's really important for us to understand just how bad Nineveh is. And we've covered this to a certain degree, but I want to drive this point home. Gwendolyn Lex says this in her book, Nineveh, with its heterogeneous population of people from throughout the Assyrian Empire, was one of the most beautiful cities in the Near East, with its gardens, temples, and splendid palaces. There are many historians who believe, you know, the, the fabled uh, hanging gardens of Babylon were actually located not in Babylon, but in Assyria. I mean, in Nineveh. And so this place was incredibly beautiful. It was gorgeous. It, it was a wonderful city, and it was very cosmopolitan and civilized, even though the people in it weren't. See, that city looked great on the outside, incredible architecture, but there was a cancer going on inside. The Assyrians looked civilized, but they really weren't. They were known for their immorality, their, their cruelty, and their idolatry. That's the reason that Jonah didn't want to go to begin with, because he knew what these people were like. Hey, good-looking city, beautiful city, but... I don't want to go there because I know what these people are like. I know just how cruel they can be. And if you do any kind of research on Google and just, you know, Google Assyrian Empire, you're going to get all kinds of images. And now these are the images that they've created. These are reliefs that they've carved into the walls and they, they begin, have begun to discover these over the centuries. This is their PR department hard at work. They wanted the other nations to know how cruel they would be. We talked a few weeks ago about the fact that one of the things they would do is they would take their captives and they would literally take a wooden pole and sharpen one in and ram it inside them. And then they would put them up on display. 
And many of the people this happened to did not die immediately. So you can imagine just what a horrendous kind of suffering went on when this was done. And what it did to the people who saw it, how it scared them, how it, it, it put into them the fear of the Assyrians because you didn't want to experience this. There's all kinds of these reliefs that are being discovered that, that show just how cruel these people could be. This particular one is someone, an Assyrian soldier flaying a man alive. Now, I can't imagine what that would be like, but they were known for this. As a matter of fact, one of their kings said this, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through the, my land and draped their skins over the walls. This guy's bragging about this. And, and, and they were known for these kinds of cruelties. And so you can imagine why Jonah didn't want to go to Assyria, but we're reading in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that this time he went. He got up and he went. See, he's got a job to do, and it's the same job he had before. We saw in chapter 1, now we see it in chapter 3. He was to call out. He was to proclaim. He had a job to do, and he had a, a mission to do, and he had a message to deliver to the people of Assyria. It literally means to proclaim to them the proclamation. Tell them what I'm telling you. Now, what's interesting about the book of Jonah is that we're given little information as to the total context of the message. And I think that's on purpose because I think what we see is Jonah reading into the message what he thinks he hears and only delivering that part of the message that he wants to deliver. I think there's more to God's message than is recorded in this book. But I think Jonah has purposely truncated it and we'll see that. He's supposed to declare God's word against them, particularly in chapter 1 in regards to their evil. Yes, they're cruel, but more than anything, they're idolatrous. They are wicked. And their wickedness comes from the fact that they don't worship the one true God. They worship false gods. And they don't have the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And so they are prone to do what men do when you are completely fallen. You do what's right in your own eyes. And so they were evil. But this time in chapter 3, God is giving him a different message. It's concerning evil, just like it was in chapter 1. But there's more he wants Jonah to tell. But Jonah's going to concentrate on that original message. You're, you're evil. You're wicked. See, chapter 1, those opening verses, God clearly said, declare to them their wickedness. And so when we open up in chapter 3, Jonah still has that message in mind. And it really doesn't matter what else God has to say. He still thinks God must be upset with their wickedness. And as he got to the city and as, as he began to go through the city, as beautiful as it was, he began to see the immorality all around him, the idols everywhere. It, it'd be like you and I going to Las Vegas to a certain degree, we, we go there and we see the decadence. It, it's a beautiful city. It's got all kinds of incredible buildings and architecture, but it doesn't take long to be there before you realize there's something immoral about this place. Or like going to New Orleans 
And, and you, you just begin to see that there's things here that aren't quite right with God. And that's exactly what he says and sees. And so he's beginning to think that maybe the message is the same. Maybe what God wants me to do is just to declare you're wicked, you're evil, and God's going to deal with you. And in my mind, I think that's exactly what Jonah wants to say to these people. But I want, I want us to look really closely at this message. What does God tell him in chapter 3? See, it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going about a day's journey. And the, he called out, this is the message, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So that's the message he's been given by God, and I think it is the message. He's not making it up. He's been given this message, and he's delivering the message, and he's delivering it in this great city. Now, this is really important to understand. The, the, the author is trying to let us know. He loves this descriptor, great. He uses it constantly. Great fish, great city, uh, great wind. You know, it's, everything's great. And... and so he's describing the city, but, but there's a particular message he's trying to deliver to you and I. The author describes Nineveh as an exceedingly great city. And, and in Hebrew, the phrase actually says, a great city, even in God's sight. That's what it says. The word translated as exceedingly is in the ESV is actually Elohim. That's that generic word for God, any God, but also for Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And it was most commonly used to refer to a God or divine being. Throughout the book of Jonah, the author substitute the name Elohim for Yahweh when speaking of God in association with the Gentiles. So what's the point? This city is important to God. Well, why? Why would God be concerned about this city? Well, let's go on. When he describes Nineveh as great, he's essentially saying that Nineveh was a great metropolis belonging to God. Another interpretation of this enigmatic phrase is an important city for God's purposes. Now that, that ought to get our attention, right? Because God has deemed this city great because it belongs to Him. And He's got something He wants to do with it. He has a purpose for that city and for its inhabitants. The, the phrase in Hebrew is really interesting. It's a great metropolis belonging to God. And see, I don't think Jonah is hearing this. I don't think he's getting this. He doesn't understand that God might want to do something with this great city. And, and this phrase in Hebrew conveys possession or sovereignty. This city belongs to God, just like Israel or Jerusalem belongs to God. Everything on this planet belongs to God. And Jonah doesn't quite understand that. Nineveh did not belong to Sennacherib, the king. And it didn't belong to their false god, Ishtar. It belonged to and fell under the sovereignty of God Almighty. And, and that's what we're going to see in these verses, that God Almighty is at work even in the most pagan city on the planet at that time. See, all Jonah wants to do is go in and smoke them. I mean, Jonah just wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. But according to God, this great city existed for His glory and for His use. He will do with them what He wants to do with them. Remember, we, we looked at earlier that God shows mercy to whom He chooses to show mercy. If He wants to show mercy to them, He will and He can, because they belong to Him and they're under His jurisdiction. 
Kevin Youngblood says this, God's mercy is as broad as his sovereignty. Though Jonah readily acknowledged God's sovereignty over all the earth, which is something he said in verse chapter 1, verse 9, he struggled with the equally universal scope of God's mercy. Once he realized that not even Assyria, Israel's dreaded, dreaded enemy, was excluded. They, they were not excluded. They were not outside the scope of God's mercy. And that was something Jonah couldn't get his head around. And he most certainly couldn't get his heart around that, as we'll see. So as we unpack this message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. Now, I don't think that's the total message, but that's the one Jonah's chosen to deliver. So he's walking through this city, this great city, and he's making his way and he's beginning to proclaim this message. Now, this word is really important to understand. See, God is saying he's going to overthrow Nineveh. Now, we look at that word in English and we think, well, it, it is what it, it means what it says. He's going to overthrow Nineveh. And it's exactly what Jonah thought God was saying. You're going to overthrow Nineveh. And he was happy about that. He was excited about that. To Jonah, it meant judgment, it meant destruction, and it meant death. Because that's exactly what the word in Hebrew means. But is that what God meant? Is that the message that God was delivering to the people of Nineveh? To a certain degree, yes. But there's an underlying message we need to understand because this word, again, is critical to understand, and it's critical to understand it according to its Hebrew meaning. See, it's hafak, and, it, and it, this is interesting. Look at this. 57 times in the Old Testament, it means to turn. Only 13 times does it mean to overthrow or to destroy. Which way do you think Jonah is understanding it? To, to overthrow, to destroy, to just to completely annihilate. But it's most often used in a positive way, to turn. It usually means to repent, to return, or to convert. Isn't that interesting? That here is God giving, it's, it's like God is doing a word play with Jonah. And he's saying, hey, go declare this message. And this Hebrew word he uses, hafak, can, can really be translated two ways. And Jonah's choosing to interpret it one way, but I think God means it a totally other way. You think, Jonah, that I'm going to destroy these people. You're in for a surprise because that's not what I'm going to do. I think in its context, as we look through these verses, it means to be changed. Because we're going to see these people are radically changed. They're not destroyed. They're changed. So that's really what God was meaning by the message all along. But Jonah goes into town and he's delivering a message of destruction God's delivering through him a message of deliverance. See, God's telling Jonah that in 40 days, the people of Nineveh will turn to him. Do you think Jonah had any suspicion that that was going to happen? Now, he feared it, right? We know in chapter 4, verse 2, in his prayer that he prays after the people turn, and he's mad, and he prays to God, and he says, I knew this is what you would do. I knew you're compassionate and loving, and this is the kind of stuff you do. They're going to turn and you're going to forgive them. So he did fear it, but I think he's hoping in this second time, this, this trip into Nineveh, God's going to do what Jonah wants God to do, which is destroy them. 
See, Jonah didn't hear it the way God intended it. And it just shows once again that this guy had a really screwed up heart. So they have two different views going on. There's God's view, there's Jonah's view. And he's going to walk into town. He's going to begin his journey through the streets of Nineveh. And he's going to tell them what he thinks is about to come upon them. And you can imagine the enthusiasm this guy had. Because he hates these people. And he wants them destroyed. To him, the meaning of God's message was very, very clear. The Ninevites were about to face the wrath of Yahweh. So he eagerly and enthusiastically walked the streets of Nineveh delivering God's divine ultimatum. You know what I think Jonah knew? That doing this, he was probably going to end up dead. You remember, he was willing to die rather than go to Nineveh. Now he's in Nineveh, and he would rather die than see them repent. So he's delivering the worst-case scenario message. And just imagine, if these are people that impale you, flay you, cut off arms and limbs, pull out your tongue... What do you think they're going to do to this Hebrew walking their streets saying, 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed? Well, it's very likely they're going to kill him. But that's not what happens, right? Why? Because God's in control. Because God is sovereign over not only Nineveh, but the people living in Nineveh. See, he's delivering an ultimatum, but God's doing something else. Jonah is trying to deliver a message and he's doing it with missionary zeal. In other words, he's enthusiastic. He is pumped about this mission. But he's just got the wrong idea of what the outcome is going to be. See, he's not looking for converts. He's looking to condemn. He's hoping God will destroy these people. But that's not what's going to happen. And you have to understand that as this man walks through the streets, he has a desire to see the people who are gathering around him be destroyed, not be delivered. There's no heart for these people. He's hoping the worst. He wants to see Nineveh overthrown and destroyed by God. But once again, God's going to have a really strange change of events take place that's totally contrary to his expectation. It's interesting that there's a lot of emphasis in these verses about days. You know, it, 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 it talks about time in a, in, a, in a way that we have to notice it and we have to figure out what do we do with it. We're told that the city is three days' journey across. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means. It was evidently a large city. Well, did it literally take you three days walking to get from one end to the other? We're not really sure. I think this is the way of the author letting you know that it's a big place. But I think more than anything, he's using these references to time, to days, three days' journey. We're told that Jonah only got one day's journey in. In other words, he, he didn't even make it to the city center. He's, he gets into about, takes a day, gets inside, and then begins declaring this message of destruction. You're going to be overthrown. You got 40 days. And that's the third part of this equation is that it's three days journey. He goes one day in and then he's declaring in 40 days. What, what's going on here? Notice that it's all dealing with time, a temporal value. We're, ta we're talking in days. But the problem is God is not bound by time. It, it, Jonah doesn't even need to get through the whole city before something amazing happens because again, God's in control. God doesn't need 40 days. God doesn't need three days. The text seems to indicate that it only took one day with Jonah walking through those streets of Nineveh, declaring this message, and something amazing happened. 
God operates outside of time. God doesn't panic about time. God sees things from beginning to end. And He sees what's happening and He knows what's happening because He's already decreed what's going to happen. See, He's shouting this message, message, Nineveh shall be overthrown. But it says, the people of Nineveh believe God. I would love to have been there and seen the look on Jonah's face when this began to happen. You know, he's, he's probably expecting stones to be thrown at him. He, he expects to be grabbed. He expects to be flayed a lot. You know, he's expecting the worst. But instead, the people believe God, which is amazing. Remember, these are wicked people. These are totally pagan people. And this statement is meant to shock us, like it shocked Jonah, and like it would shock the people who were the original audience of this book. Remember, I said week one, I believe this book was written by somebody other than Jonah. It was written long after the events in the book of Jonah. And it was written and read to the people of Israel who were living in Assyria in captivity long after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So they're up there living in Assyria in captivity as nothing more than slaves. And this book about Jonah's life is being read to them. And this would have gotten their attention. Because who are they the captives of? The Assyrians. And they hear the story that the Assyrians believed. They believed God. Unbelievable. And unconvincing, right? Because, well, then what happened? Why are we here in captivity? What changed? See, this whole story doesn't make sense to them. It didn't make sense to Jonah. And it didn't take God 40 days. It took him one. And what's amazing is it only took the Ninevites one day to believe. See, Jonah didn't have to do a 40-day revival. He walks in the city for one day declaring that God's going to overthrow this city and the people believed. Guess what? The Israelites had never believed. See, the Israelites were in captivity because of their disbelief, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their apostasy, their idolatry. And God had been sending prophets to them for centuries, and they wouldn't listen. God sends one reluctant prophet who's declaring the wrong message, in other words, his version of the message, and yet the Ninevites believe. Everything about this story shouldn't work, and yet it does because God's in charge. And it's an indictment on the people of Israel. This idea of 40 days is also pretty important, and I think it would have struck a nerve with the Israelites because that would have brought up a lot of Old Testament history for them, their own history. It would have, have significant meaning to them as the people of God. It would have reminded them that, that their ancestors had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't obey God. They failed to trust God. Here's the Ninevites in one day turning and believing in God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. But the Israelites failed to believe in their own God all the way back during the wilderness days. They failed to do what God told them to do. See, in Numbers 14, 11 through 12, it says, How long will these people treat me with contempt? Speaking of the Israelites, will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them? I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I will make it, you into a greater nation and mightier than they are. He, he's talking to Moses. 
Now listen to what Moses does. This is pretty significant. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died, for they had disobeyed, disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord vowed He would not let them enter the land He had sworn to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is all the way fast-forwarding to the book of Joshua when the people are now ready to go into the land, and Moses is reiterating what happened all the way back 40 years ago when the people wouldn't go in the first time, when they wouldn't believe God, when they wouldn't trust God. And now he's saying, guess what? The next generation is going to go in. Forty years later, this generation does enter in. Why didn't the first one go in? Because they had disobeyed the Lord and they died in the wilderness. They never got to go into the land of promise. They had failed to believe God. They had failed to do what God had called them to do. And yet here are these pagan Ninevites doing exactly what the Israelites should have done as the chosen people of God. See, this whole book is meant to indict the Israelites through the life of Jonah, but now through the life of these pagan Ninevites because they believed God. They believed in, in Yahweh. The Israelites hadn't. What's interesting in this whole story is that Jonah never mentions the name of God, Yahweh, to these people. Nowhere in chapter 3 does he ever tell the Ninevites who he's speaking on behalf of? And that's significant. He never says, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, like every other prophet does. He just goes through the city and he says, 40 days from now you're going to be destroyed. Doesn't even tell them who is going to do this, the destroying. He never cl clarifies what they did wrong. He doesn't ever list their crime. He never tells them because you are idolatrous, because you're cruel, because you're wicked, because you're immoral. He never says any of that, so they don't know what they've done wrong. And again, don't miss that. And third, he never offers them a chance to repent. Every other prophet who ever prophesied to the people of Israel always gave them a chance to repent. He spoke for God, he told them what their crime was, and he told them how to repent and be restored. None of that takes place here. And they still believe. That's why this is a picture of God's mercy and grace and power. He's the one doing it. Jonah never tells them what to do, and they instinctively do it. They instinctively do it. They believe in Elohim. That's the word that's used here. They believe in God, but this time it's not some generic God. It's not Ishtar. It's Yahweh. They're believing in the one true God with no help from Jonah. It's clear. Jonah's done nothing other than deliver what he thinks is a message of destruction, and yet these people are suddenly attracted to God, Elohim, Yahweh, the one true God. This guy, Jonah, shows no interest in helping these people. He's not trying to clarify anything. He's not trying to point out their sins so they can repent. He doesn't want to do anything that might even remotely help them repent and maybe be saved. He wants them destroyed. And I want us to look at Moses. Look at what Moses does. This is all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses had gone up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from, from God, and he comes back down, and he finds that down in the valley below, the people have decided, with the help of Aaron, his brother, to erect a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. They're having basically an orgy. 
And he comes down with the tablets and he sees this. It says, So while the mountain was blazing with fire, I turned and came down holding in my hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. There below me I could see that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had melted gold and made a calf idol for yourselves. How quickly you had turned away from the path the Lord had commanded you to follow. So I took the stone tablets, I threw them to, to the ground, smashing them before your eyes. In other words, he was holding God's law his decrees for living in relationship with him and with one another, and before he could even give them to the people, they had done this. They had decided that we're not going to wait around for Moses, and we're done worshiping Yahweh. We're going to worship a God of our own choosing, our own making. But look at what Moses does. Then, as before, I threw myself down before the Lord, and don't miss this, for 40 days and nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of the great sin you had committed by doing what the Lord hated, provoking him to anger. I feared that the furious anger of the Lord, which turned him against you, would drive him to destroy you. But again, he listened to me. Do you see the difference between what Moses does and what Jonah didn't do? Moses knew the people were guilty. He called it out. He cried out to God on their behalf and he saved them. See, Jonah is not just the reluctant prophet. He's the uncompassionate prophet. He doesn't care about these people. All he wants is to see them destroyed. And that's a huge difference. So what happens? Verse 5 to me is fascinating. It says, The people of Nineveh believed God, and then they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. They called for a fast. How did they know to do that? How did they know to put on sackcloth to, to basically humble themselves before God Almighty? Because Jonah hadn't told them. He hadn't even told them their, his name. He hadn't told them their crime. But they instinctively knew, with God's help, that they had sinned against God Almighty. And so they fasted and they put on sackcloth. This word believe is really important. Because in the Hebrew, it means to trust or to believe in. They, they fully put their trust in God. And, and that's amazing. Again, because they're pagans, because they've never met God. They don't know anything about the God of Israel. And yet they believe in Him. So we have to ask the question, did they really become Yahweh worshipers? Did, did they get rid of all the idols in Nineveh? Did, did they suddenly give up all their false gods? I, I think historically that seems very unlikely because we know these very same people years later would, would descend upon the northern kingdom of Israel and particularly the capital city of Samaria and destroy it and take everyone captive. So I don't think this was a long-term change in the, the life of the people of Nineveh or the Assyrian nation. I think what God is doing is showing that He can change anybody He wants to. He can change a whole city if He wants to. How long did this change last in them? Evidently not that long. It, it, it didn't affect permanent change. But He set apart the people of Israel, right? He called them. He set them apart. He made them His own. And they didn't stay faithful to God very long either. So the fact that the Ninevites didn't end up worshiping Yahweh for the rest of their history shouldn't shock us. Neither had the Israelites. And yet there were periods of time in both the northern kingdom of Israel 
and most certainly in the kingdom of Judah where the people did return to God. They did worship God. See, God is giving through the story a glimpse of His redemptive plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. That's really what this is all about. This is Old Testament picturing what's going to happen in the New Testament. Bottom line, God can and will redeem people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we know it happened, right? We know when Jesus Christ came, when Jesus Christ commissioned His disciples, and they went out after Pentecost, and they took the message of the kingdom out. People of every tribe, nation, and tongue came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see here they called out. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth. They worshiped Yahweh. How long did it last? We don't know. But it began at the grassroots. It began with the people. We're going to see next week that the king eventually gets involved. But this really happened with just the people. But the whole nation was eventually impacted by this incredible change of heart. They displayed penitence. They, they displayed their humility from the greatest to the least, it tells us. See, this was a, a major change and it was all orchestrated by God with no help from Jonah. And it's meant to be a contrast between those people of Israel sitting in exile in Assyria who never did do this. The whole reason they're in captivity, the whole reason their nation was destroyed was because they didn't do what the Ninevites did. Humble themselves, confess their sins, and believe in Yahweh. That's a pretty sad indictment. Amos, who's a contemporary of Jonah, writes this in his book. I overthrew some of you, God says, same word, I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a, a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. See, now God's using that word overthrow in its negative sense. He's saying, hey, Israel, I overthrew you, I brought enemies against you, yet I plucked you out of the fire, and you still wouldn't return to me. You still rebelled. You still wouldn't worship me. And this leads me to the Gospels, Matthew 18, or Matthew 8, where Jesus has an encounter with a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-believer, a pagan, uh, someone who comes to him and he has a servant who needs healing. And he asked Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house. And the man says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come to my home. Just say the word from where you are and your, my servant will be healed. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now that was a slap in the face to the disciples and everyone standing around him, including the Pharisees. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Israelites, at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites... Those for whom the kingdom was prepared will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that last line, if you heard my sermon this past Sunday, should be familiar because in Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42, and verses 49 and 50, Jesus used this phrase twice. See, there's a judgment coming. There's a time coming when things will be radically different. And He's telling the Israelites who are around Him at this occasion that this Gentile centurion has more faith than you do because he believes in me and you don't. Pretty profound story, pretty profound impact. So here's your discussion questions for this week. 
I want you to discuss what you think is going through Jonah's mind as he watched all of this take place. Just use your sanctified imagination and just imagine what he's thinking, what, what thoughts come into his mind, you know, what's his temperature like emotionally as he watches these people begin to repent and put on sackcloth and begin to bow down before Yahweh. Secondly, why do you think God allowed these pagan Assyrians to hear and respond to his message the way they did? Keep in mind, they couldn't have done it without him. See, Jonah didn't help. He, he, he wasn't calling them to repent, repentance, but they did. So why do you think God did this? And finally, read Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. How would you relate these verses to the story of the Ninevites? So those are your discussion questions. Do them with a friend. Do them with your wife. Get your kids together. Talk about them. Um, if, you're, if your small group is meeting, spend some time thinking about this story and thinking about these verses and how they apply to you. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. I pray that you would bless uh, our further study as we dig into these verses and dig into these questions and wrestle with them. And Lord, what do you want us to take away from the story of Jonah? Thank you, Lord, for your word and for providing it for us. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.